Anish Ruben, how are you guys? Welcome again. We'll repeat guests. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, when it's two people, it's always hard to coordinate to say hi or, or what. But um, you've both been on the podcast before, so I don't think I need to run the introductions for too long. So if you want, just um, I'm going to try and and get you guys to do a quick intro of yourselves and what it is that you do. So I'll just start with Ruben and then we'll get going. Sure. Uh, my name is Ruben. I am the project steward of Firo, uh, formerly known as Zcoin. And basically we are privacy focused uh, cryptocurrency with our own uh, unique privacy protocol. So, yep, that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, last time we had you here, uh, you had just rebranded to Firo and you were just yes. in introducing a lot of new concepts and ideas. So it's going to be good to hear how that has developed. And well, Anish, your turn. Oh, my name is Anish Mohammed. I'm the founder and uh, CTO and sometimes the chief scientist for Panther Protocol. Panther Protocol provides privacy for DeFi. That's it. Cool. So, and yeah, as well, like Anish has also been a, a guest on this podcast. And last time we spoke a lot about his background and about the whole concept of what Panther is. So if at, at some point you get a, you want to get a deeper idea on what any of these two projects are, uh, I'd really recommend you guys to check out the, the full episodes individually with both of them. And yeah, well, I mean, you bought the podcasting, so we can just get talking about, uh, about whatever last time um, as i said firo had just rebranded last time ruben was here last time anish was here we were um they had just basically set out to to launch panther and now you guys are collaborating together so would any of you i mean i'm just gonna point to anish here uh would you like to touch on what the collaboration is oh uh Okay, so there's a bunch of in, uh, overlaps in multiple ways. One is a philosophical sense and the fact that we both value privacy. And the other part is the fact that some of the mechanisms that we use are kind of similar, like cryptographic primitives. In some senses, being not identical in that sense. I should warn people in that sense. Like mechanisms for providing privacy are in the same class. And uh, there are possibilities where what we both do could actually coexist and we can actually work together. So that is kind of how we think about it. Ruben, I think you're in a far better position to articulate this better than me. Uh, no, well, I mean, I guess actually in the space, although, you know, there's a lot of privacy coins, there's a lot of, uh, you know, projects that, that do privacy, not a lot of them actually do have, I would say, you know, cryptographers or research teams, right? And I think, you know, there's kind of been a lack of collaboration in the space. Everyone's kind of like, you know, just kind of doing their own thing, kind of siloed off. Mm -hmm. And, you know, although, yes, you know, we're both like privacy projects, uh, I do think as a whole, you know, in general, if we do work together, collaborate, is generally, you know, the results you're going to get is greater than the sum of its parts, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, Panda has, you know, definitely the, the cryptographic resource and researchers uh, to, to do it. And we also have our own inde independent research team. So I think it's a great way to, you know, at least, you know, make sure that, you know, we have open communication channels. We can, you know, discuss uh, ideas of what we have. 
And I think, uh, you know, we also looking to become a, a, a supported ZK asset on in the Penta protocol ecosystem as well. So I think that's uh, like, you know, basically sums up what uh, we'll be working on in this partnership. Yeah. And Oliver and Anish, I've known, known them for quite a while now as well. Yeah. I just wanted to expand on this point because like for, for some people, including myself, hearing this, like most of these projects do not have cryptographers. I mean, I, I would think that that's like using email, that, that should be like number one thing that you should have for this. Uh, why isn't it so? Well, well, if uh, I may say... Go ahead, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Ruben, Ruben you, go, you go first. No, no, no. You first, you first, please. <laughs> You're the cryptographer so, here. <laughs> no, I think the challenge is the following, right? Um, there are only a very small subset of people who you could call cryptographers in one sense or the other. Like academic cryptographers, what that implies is they go to some math department and they do a PhD in some topic in cryptography. And typically the career for them is either do a postdoc and go to a resource lab or become an academic, right? Both of those things are not a massively common, you know, something that actually gives you a lot of compensation. And secondly, you know, people who are interested in doing that are not really motivated that easily by compensation. So now you have a challenge, right? Mm. And, and the other thing is the time it takes for somebody to go through this process to get to where you want to is quite long. And uh, given all these things, the total amount of, and, and that's other, and one important thing that everybody should recognize. Security and cryptography is a key skill for national security. So a lot of a lot of the employers of this kind of people are, you know, have contracts that won't allow them to do anything else, right? And they have a strict security requirements like that. So in total, what has actually happened is like the number of people who have the skill, uh, you know, firstly they are an isolated community; they don't really go out and talk to everybody. And uh, secondly, you know, the people who are interested in blockchain had created a bit of a challenge for themselves by kind of, you know, being a bit not very friendly to us cryptographers. Cryptographers have been exposed to a lot of the problems in blockchain for a very long while. And uh, from both sides, cryptographers didn't really highly think of, of blockchain. Until recently, IESCR and other, uh, you know, cryptographic conferences didn't have a segment of blockchain until very recently, even though it's just been there for like last 10 years, right? So that is both sides of the problem. Like one side of the problem is the blockchain people not really recognizing the need for real cryptographic expertise. And uh, cryptographers looking at this thing, ah, this is one of the things that's happening. And both of them combined with a very small, tiny population, you know, we have uh, hundreds of thousands of blockchain projects. And definitely there are not that many cryptographers. So that explains the mathematical reasoning behind what has happened. Okay. And would you like to add to that, Ruben? Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, people think that cryptographers are diamond on dozen, but, you know, even within cryptographers, you know, not all of them are, you know, it's kind of like the doctor, right? You're not going to get your neurosurgeon to perform like, you know, a leg surgery and stuff like that, right? So cryptographers, yes, they probably can understand, but they also tend to have specialties as well. Uh, and in a way also a lot, because of the way blockchain technology moves, um, it's also quite t 
tough for someone who's just casually involved or like you know cursorily observing the space to actually keep track with all the developments like you know the the, the work in ZKP you know in the past what I don't know five years or so has been maybe you know normally would have maybe taken 10 20 years and now it's just like compressed and everything like that so I do think it is hard and it's also hard to, for a team to kind of say like, look, I'm going to invest in cryptographers, but I don't actually have, you know, it's kind of like research work, right? We don't really know where we're going to go uh, at the end of the day. And it's mm. kind of like, you know, am I going to get a return on investment? That's a big risk to take as well, especially when everyone else is just like, let's just use what's out there. Let's deploy fast. Let's get it uh, a working product. And that seems kind of have been a trend in blockchain right now let's get something out that you know maybe not so decentralized maybe not so great but it works so let's just get it out there and you know that obviously puts like you know research on like kind of like a second seat and, and that's kind of where we differ in approach uh for Firo. uh yeah so so yeah i mean that's kind of it <laughs> so i should probably say at this point i was lucky enough uh, to have been in a PSU program and applied math program. So I have worked in a couple of labs, so I know a bunch of the people. So I could probably plead with them to come work with me. So that was the advantage we had. So I convinced my PhD office mate to join the team. And uh, similarly, you know, having worked with a whole bunch of people in the ZKP space, I, I have the ability to, you know, plead to them saying, please help me out. And this is the reason why you should help us out. Uh, you know, that's that's the only benefit of actually having spent twenty years in cryptography. <laughs> and I, Anish, I mean, from your face and from the gestures you were making, I'm sure you wanted to add something about CKPs and the development over the last years, wouldn't you? Oh, absolutely. What Ruben said is incredibly to the point. Like, uh, you know, 2011. Okay, I had the handle of Zero Nords for the last twenty years. Okay. And I know this sounds silly for a lot of people. I have Gmail, I have GitHub, I have Telegram, pretty much all of this. I was I can attest. Since, two, uh, <laughs> <laughs> since 2001, I've been interested in zero knowledge. But zero knowledge really took off after the non-interactive schemes were created in 2011. But the 2011 scheme wasn't really much. 2013 is when the paper was kind of written, and then you know things started moving. And I think one of the things that happened was at that point in time, the total number of people that were interested in non-interactive zero knowledge in the non-academic sense was like close to zero. And suddenly a team arrived, uh, created the Zcash one, and then a whole bunch of other people got interested. By like 2016, uh, things had moved on. Fry, I mean, as in like a stock and fry and all those things came up in 2016, 2017. And literally from then on, like that was a competition in many ways, right? It's like one side stock and uh, that schemes are all happening. At the same time, Bulletproof happened. The snarks in the middle are happening and then merging between all these things. And literally 2019, Eddie uh, Vincent actually wrote a, a, a blog post called the Cambridge Explosion of Zika Snarks or something like that, which literally summarizes what has literally happened. What Ruben said is absolutely right. Typically, cryptographic research, would, that would have taken 20 years. At least 10 years probably happened in the last three years without a shadow of a doubt. All right. Um, I mean, there's quite some points to take this here. 
I was just, uh, we were talking with Ruben the other day when we were just like <laughs> gossiping, waiting for you to join the Zoom call uh, about things that are not what they seem to be, <laughs> that are not what they seem to be, because like there are blockchain bridges that are actually multi-sequel wallets. There's the whole Bitcoin in a Salvador thing that are, are just, just things that are not exactly what they're advertised as. And I reckon that this must happen a lot in the privacy space, right? There must be a lot of things that are just, just get called privacy when they're nowhere near it. I mean, it's a very, very hard thing to do, right? Uh, privacy, in the fullest sense of speaking, is almost impossible to do. It's an information theoretic arbitrage with very tight bounds. And that is an incredibly hard thing to do. You know, I, I, among my other spare time interests, I have an interest in philosophy. And I wrote a paper, which is the basis of Panther, like 10 years ago. I call it the new secret. And my co-author now became a very well-known philosopher. Uh, you know, just a joint work with him. So to me, uh, you know, there's a real philosophical basis to how you actually do things like this. And you need to actually meet a minimal criteria. But unfortunately, the effort required to meet the minimum criteria is high that most people, you know, kind of fake it. So, you know, the return on investment very much depends, right? Like, you know, if you put in a lot of effort and you get this much, and, you know, that this much is not having much of a value in the market, then you go, you know what? Anyways, let, let me just call it that way. And nobody is going to figure out that, you know, I am doing X or Y or Z. That's how I am wrong. Mm -hmm. Ruben, want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I would say that, you know, there's obviously a, a information kind of like differential, right? I mean, obviously we don't expect you know, the retail average shows to kind of understand all this cryptography or even, you know, bother to to, to dive into the intricacies of this. And in, especially, you know, blockchain and stuff like that, it, it moves really quick. And what actually tends to happen is, you know, especially in the unregulated space, the, a lot of people make all the sorts of claims, uh, you know, and it's more about ideology rather than a technology. I... And that's kind of unfortunate because everyone gets ideology. Everyone can get behind ideology. And mm -hmm. it's not to say ideology is wrong, but it has to actually be backed by actual technology. But it is often easy to just focus and talk about the ideology, get people to buy in uh, when they actually, the, the technology barely kind of meets the requirements of, of, of that ideology. So, I mean, I, I do think that, you know, the, the awareness is getting better, but, you know, I don't think this is a problem that's unique to blockchain. I mean, we've seen, you know, stuff with misinformation campaigns in real life and on, on complex topics like, like vaccines, which I probably should not go into, but, you know, it's just a general trend in the world where complex topics have been bound into like simple ideological messages rather than the actual science behind it. So, yeah, hopefully... Hopefully people wake up. I'm not that hopeful, but um, it needs to be balanced, right? Yeah. But actually, the point you were making there, that's very good because um, you're right. Like there is a tendency to like put down like nuanced discussions. I was just hearing the other day, the 
chess player, Gary Kasparov, talking about mm. how he, and this is like an old podcast, podcast or something, but he was talking about how if people actually wanted to take down Trump, they should focus on one thing instead of like trying to point out all of his faults. Because as soon as you would point out more than one, but that's his theory anyways, right? And so take it for what, it, for what it's worth. But like, that's what he was saying that if you focus on only one, you actually get a better chance because that the minute you're too widespread to attack many different fronts, that becomes a problem uh, because then it's easy to get ideology in the, in the middle. So, and since you're making a pretty nuanced point there, where do you think ideology starts getting in the way of technology, especially in such an idealistic space? Well, for me, I think, you know, maximalism, when ideology becomes maximalism mm. uh, and the inability to kind of see past what you have already, I think that's when ideology really gets, uh, you know, into the piece. Of course, you know, this is a very controversial opinion, but, you know, I do think that, you know, Bitcoin kind of suffers from that, right? Like, you know, the the unwillingness to... to uh, to, to consider other stuff and, you know, the crap on other projects that are trying newer stuff. and things. Of course, not, not all Bitcoiners like this, but I'm talking in particular like the Maxis and stuff like that, uh, you know, to, to say that, oh, pure proof of work is the only way to go. You know, what happens when, when the emission goes to zero will be totally, you know, subsidized by fees and stuff like that. You know, no one actually really knows and the kind of like just, you know, burrow your head into this ideology uh, you know, there'll be only 21 million, there'll be no other stuff, you know, we have small blocks, everything, you know, um, that's kind of like one example of how uh, ideology can can really get uh, into the weeds of actually like pushing development, right? Because some people even ch uh, say that the ossification of Bitcoin is a good thing, right? Maybe it is, but... I know that that sounds kind of sad as well. I think Anish wants to say something there. Yeah, <laughs> actually, actually it, was yeah. Really, it was really funny that he used the raise hand function of Zoom because I was just making a joke about raising his hand because we cannot see him. <laughs> yeah. Good one. So, uh, so the thing I wanted to say was uh, I, I generally mention this to everybody when I talk about blockchain. I say to everybody, blockchain is a religion. And what, Ruben, you describe is literally, historically, that has been something that we've seen, the fight between the religion and belief systems, right? As in, like, even science, it's like religion and science has had this ongoing struggle between them on a continuous basis. And whenever, you know, uh, somebody has very strong beliefs, and their strong beliefs actually overcome their rational, then it becomes tricky. So the way I think about most blockchains, uh, they have a belief system, they have an apostle, they have a prophet and a bunch of apostles. Sometimes the prophet is a hidden one, like uh, in, in Sharia and Islam, which is like the Shia Islam, that's a hidden imam. So that's a, in a 12, uh, in 12 Shia Islam, right? The same way in Bitcoin, we have a Satoshi who is the hidden imam, right? And then there are the, you know, the representatives of the imams on earth, right? Like literally the apostles in that sense. And literally these are the people who actually drive the narrative. And then, you know, if you think about Ethereum, they actually have the prophet, you know, or the prophets, or the apostles. He can actually call interoperably any one of them. And the, 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 the reason for that is 
This is delayed gratification, right? The delayed gratification is required because A, for anybody to actually invest, B, for anybody to actually learn the language to develop anything in this ecosystem. And once they got into this ecosystem, there's a social cost, there's an economic cost, there's, an, you know, there's a cost in multiple dimensions. And so they really want to believe in what they do. And that completely changes the, the rational and the narrative around any such uh, scientific systems. Apologies for a long time. Man, and they say like the difference between a religion and a cult is like in a cult, the leader is alive, right? So in, in, this, uh, in this regard, Ethereum would be more like a cult. I am not going to comment on that. <laughs> you, can, you, you, I you, mean, you, should, you shouldn't quote me on that. That, that being said, I, I do think Vitalik is one of the, you know, one of the people that they do try to make nuanced discussions. I really like his, his, uh, what, what he writes and, and, you know, he, he doesn't seem to be like falling into like this maximalism thing. Of course, people can impute what he does and stuff like that. But I think generally he, he is You know, he tries to be as objective and, and open to things as possible. So, you know, in terms of uh, cult leaders or stuff like that, I, I think he's one of the better ones, definitely. I'd like to hear how do you perceive yourself as a cult leader, Ruben? No, I am a very bad cult leader. I mean, uh, it has been said that, you know, for, to lead a project, you need to be charismatic and stuff like that. And and sometimes that's a problem, right? Because, I mean, I even, you know, purposely chose the 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 title of a project steward, right? Instead of something like CEO or something like that, right? And and um, it's the, the, the way I see myself is like looking after the project because eventually, you know, I think Satoshi had the right idea, right? Eventually the project cannot once it's already taken off it cannot be always like you know beholden to to this like you know one one cult figure and i think one of the issues is also because most of the stuff that i say as a lawyer is very nuanced it's not like a simple punchy message mm -hmm. uh that definitely hurts uh but uh i try not to be one but i try to be honest and, and transparent about what we do uh and hopefully you know, people can see the, the, the good intentions and, and the good work that we're putting in. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah I mean, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was about to say we are far away from actually having any cultish following. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think uh, a panda would literally have a kind of a cultish following in any way, shape or form. Firstly, we don't actually have any such cult beliefs as such. Uh, you know, the only belief that we probably have is that privacy is valuable and uh, different levels of privacy, you know, meets different requirements and society might have an upside in having privacy. So this is how we think about it. But, you know, who knows? And that might become a religion. If that becomes a religion, probably that's a reasonably better one, I guess. But I don't want to be the apostle or the prophet in that religion or the cult leader. I mean, and in the... I would say that privacy is becoming a little bit of a religion, uh, especially because you're seeing so many beliefs cluster around the privacy community. And this is not the privacy community or privacy as a concept's fault, right? Um, but uh, people do tend to conflate being uh, pro-privacy with also being like libertarian, anti-vax anti-vaccination at least in covid etc etc like like people like to put all these things in the same bag whether 
it makes sense that they belong together in it or not. Um, and that's probably like <laughs> a discussion like Ruben said we shouldn't get into. But um, I, I, the, the, that being said, I, I do would like to say that, you know, like privacy often has been always seen as a way, as a, a challenge to authority. And, and a lot of the people that, that do have this type of belief systems uh, obviously don't trust governments. They don't trust, uh, you know, large organizations. And, you know, they, they are... They're right to a certain extent, right? Of course, you can, you know, there are spectrums on, on how to do that, right? Uh, but anyway, I actually just wanted to share a little funny story on terms of cult. Not that Fira was turning into a cult, but the other day, you know, several community members wanted to have a t-shirt with me on it. And that yeah. that was like a bit wow. of a warning <laughs> sign. And I was like, I'm not going to put official merch of me. <laughs> that would be a kind of weird, right? But uh, yeah, I just thought that was kind of funny because everyone was like, yeah, let's print it. I'm like, no, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, la la last time I talked to you, I'm going to call you out publicly. <laughs> last time I talked to you, you had a mug that someone made that yes. had an image of you as well. <laughs> that was kind of cool, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I like that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, I mean, devolving from the cult thing a bit. Um, I mean, I, I, just, I just keep laughing <laughs> about the marketing because I, I remember seeing it and I was like, "Oh, this is pretty cultish." <laughs> and now we're back at the, at the discussion. Um, when you talk about collaborating between both of your projects you're right that not everyone collaborates in this space which is a shame because there's a lot of valuable insights that like paradoxically end up not able to communicate with each other uh which you would call centralization <laughs> well there was a bit of a paradox there um what why do you think the privacy space isn't uh, communicating with itself more since that's the one I would say gets closer to being more of a traditional science if you want to start a niche. Could you repeat your question once more for me so I fully understand it clearly? Yeah, I mean, I would think that cryptography because it very strongly correlates to privacy and yeah. it... Um, It's the one that's more of hard science, right? As opposed to what we would study in blockchains, which is a bit of components of economics and game theory, which are like more like social sciences. But cryptography is like, I would say more objective. So why okay. do you think there's so, not more research and sharing going within that community? Oh, you know, I would say very strongly that there are a lot of sharing that's going on in the privacy community in the cryptography world. But that is different from the privacy community in the blockchain world, right? Hmm. So I've published at least one paper of mine in a, you know, a PET, you know, privacy enhancing technology workshops and things like that. So like, there's a whole bunch of research that goes on that's mostly academic, like, you know, very, very academic. And you work with different people, you publish stuff, you get the kudos and paper is done and you're done and that's it. The blockchain space, that's kind of a different, right? There is a bunch of upside to be had, mostly economic upside. And that is probably the reason the incentives are not really aligned. If, you know, the incentive is not have a nice paper and a good conference and, you know, have a beer after that, you know, you don't want to be like, you know, fighting against anybody for that thing, right? 
your incentive to fight is very small. But if there's a few million on the table and you actually get a chunk of the few million, you know, if you manage to message yourself to be the person who actually came up with that, yes, there is a lot of incentive for people not to collaborate, but to, you know, how could I say fight against each other? So that that's kind of the game theoretic argument about that. So, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm being a, a bit of a cynic. No, I I actually think this is a great kind of idea to kind of illustrate like you know the, the different the different approaches that different projects take, right? Uh, especially in the privacy space. And on the one hand, you know you have the Monero, you know everything's uh, as open as they can be. You know uh, they, they are generally quite collaborative as well, right? Uh, and all your research is open, stuff like that. On the other hand, you have Zcash, right? Which which did start quite open, but you know recently has become more and more opaque. And you know, uh, just to kind of like give an example, right? They have this uh, Orchard upgrade, uh, which is they are the kind of implementation of Halo Two that's coming. I don't know in a couple of months or so, right? Um, there's no there's no kind of paper out for Halo Two. There's no yeah. uh, you know that the documentation for for Halo 2 and Orchard is, yes, it's a protocol spec and everything, but it doesn't give a very, it's just like, yeah, it describes stuff, but doesn't describe it fully, right? And the way that they have chosen, and they also like created this new license to kind of say that, you know, we can do stuff that we don't have to open source, but we only have to open source after a year and stuff like that. So you can see that it's a clear movement because they have, Put in a lot of work, a good amount of research, and a, a lot of hard work to to kind of develop Halo Two and all their tech, right? And obviously, if they do all the hard work, then later all these other projects just come in and copy it. Uh, you know, there's this worry that oh yeah, you know, we are putting in the hard work, but we are not necessarily reaping the benefit because everyone else can copy us as well. Right. I mean, I don't kind of agree with that because I do think that generally the, the, the main project that comes up with the tech generally still, you know, um, succeeds. But, you know, they have taken this path to say, like, look, you know, we're going to be more close. We're going to be more opaque to pro- kind of protect and be able to monetize our IP. And that's why we aren't as open as 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 we can be, because obviously if we, in the in the cryptography set, it's not just academic in the blockchain because now you are competing with other projects that are also trying to one up using my privacy stuff is better, my stuff is better. So obviously, mm-hmm. if you have like this, you know, technological breakthrough, you want to be first to market, right? So that definitely hurts a collaboration in 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 a very big way. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I was about to say, I, I, I agree with Ruben. And, uh, you know, the way I would describe it is like the the arbitrage of innovation in privacy research, and uh, the era of, for that has started. So that's what uh, Ruben is kind of alluding to in this Halo 2 episode, right? So, you know, Halo 2 and Halo Infinite papers were published and uh, people looked at it and then they started working on it. Probably, you know, the amount of effort they have put in and they're seeing competitors that are following them very closely. So you know, typically what you recognize in the snarky space, as in like the CK snark space, is there are so many schemes that's been created, but some of the schemes are better than others for various implementation reasons. 
And, uh, you know, it, it then boils down to just how fast can you implement something? Can you actually make something better? There's been a bunch of tooling that's been built by some sort of people. And again, uh, your ability to compete on the tooling is kind of bounded. So what can you actually do? So it, it's just, I think it, it becomes like a more a question of like, do everything that you can in the space that you're allowed to, which essentially means marketing, right? So that's kind of where I think one of the problems exists. Like going back to the first thing that Ruben was saying, the total number of cryptographers and all the ZKB projects in total will be in a small compared to the same amount of money if it were something else. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and um, you both touch on competition in the space. And I, I guess you both already so, sort of dove a little bit into this issue, but it would be good to to just go back to it because then there's the sense of, you would say that if privacy could be considered quote-unquote objective, if there is something as a good result that can be achieved and someone breaks away, I mean, someone does a breakthrough into that, then it doesn't make sense to have as much competition in the privacy space, right? Because you're all pushing to, towards the same goal. So what do you think uh, the value of having multiple players in this ecosystem is, Ruben? Well, the thing is that, you know, especially in the blockchain privacy scene, right? I mean, um, there hasn't actually been kind of like what we call like the holy grail of, of stuff, right? And, and, Privacy is, is also a cat and mouse game, right? And similarly, yeah. like, you know, if, if, you know, let's just, let's just talk about like medication, right? Like, you know, antibiotics, right? You have this bacteria or, you know, some sort of stuff and you have one type of antibiotic that, that kind of, of fixes that. What happens when the antibiotic doesn't work anymore, right? So I, I do think that, you know, especially having multiple approaches to, to privacy with different primitives, with different constructions does make the space better, right? Because who knows, right? You know, maybe our stuff is totally broken. Maybe, you know, uh, right, you know, the there's, there's a, there's, there's an, there's an issue in, in, in Halo 2 or, or ZK Snarks, then what? You know, if everyone's just going through a few mm. type of systems, and I mean, like, even now, like, if you see so many people are, are, are looking at, like, Monero and stuff like that, and there's already kind of, you know, there, there are signs that, that Monero's privacy as it is right now may not be sufficient in, in the next one or two years because, you know, uh, talking about statistic, statistical analysis, the way they pick their decoys, because that gets a bit technical. But the idea is that if we just like kind of blinker ourselves, say this is the only approach that we're going to go, right now at least we have, you know, we have, you know, ZK Snarks, you know, we have ZK Stocks, we have, you know, uh, Ring Signatures, we have Lelanta Spark, and at least several different types of uh, approaches to privacy. So if one fails... And we can always learn from each other, right? Mm -hmm. And I do think that makes a more strong privacy ecosystem, right? I mean, there are some there's some projects that say, all right, yeah, you know, I, I don't really care. I'm okay with using Intel SGX technology, proprietary stuff. Uh, let's just rely everything on Intel to provide privacy and, and all of that. Yeah, you know, we may not agree, but 
uh, that's also another path to take, right? And each mm-hmm. kind of approach also has different trade-offs, right? Some is good performance at the cost of trusted setup or fancy exotic math. I do think there is real benefit to have diversity in privacy technology uh, rather than like, you know, just one or two big ones. And then everyone's just like, oh yeah, that's the way to go. And when one of it breaks, uh, that's kind of like GG, right? <laughs> yeah. So adding to what Ruben has to say, you know, having published at least one paper in the TPM space, I have uh, some first-hand exposure to trusted execution environments and writing protocols with trusted execution environments. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, th- th- there is, you know, two two models of trust that's actually being proposed here. The model of trust that is being proposed in TPM is you actually have to trust the hardware manufacturer. And you also have to trust that, you know, if they are malicious, there is no way for you to actually validate that. And also, if it breaks, there is no way that you could actually fix it either. So you have that bigger problem. And then the other side of the equation is like, you know, do we just use one scheme? Again, okay, say tomorrow one of the nation state adversaries have an access to a quantum computer. And that implies in both ECDLP, elliptical, discrete law problem, and our self-action becomes a linear, it becomes in polynomial time, which essentially means you can solve in a really fast time. That implies a lot of the schemes that we are currently using will be toast in no time. So probably the only things that will be standing will be like stocks and some other variants of, you know, snarks that are the SMARGs and that such. So I don't know, like there is always value in actually having uh, heterogeneity. Uh, this has been proven to us by you know, virus outbreaks when Microsoft and Windows was the main thing. Now it's much less of a main thing. There is other people, even at the at least at the edges. But there is also the cost. Standardization comes with benefits of economies of scale, right? Mm-hmm. If you look at the you know uh, electricity or things of that sort, what you know is like you really don't have to really go for uh, you know every plug in every country in that sense. There's a large amount of uh, you know standardization, so you know you can plug your thing device into the socket on the wall, you're kind of assured either it's 110 or 220 volts and some cycles in AC, and that gives you a lot of benefit. Uh, so I, I think there is absolutely a lot of benefit in standardization in interoperable sense, okay? So even if we actually have one of the breaks, we still can actually start thinking in and out in that sense. At the same time, doing everything the same way also has the same problem. It's like if, if one of the things breaks, like everything you know, completely breaks in that sense. And you, I mean, interoperability is a whole thing, and Panther is very much about that whole thing. Uh, but um, both of you touched on the fact that the blockchain cryptography space and the blockchain privacy space are not necessarily all that there is to the privacy space, right? Um, that there is much more being developed that isn't directly being developed for or because of blockchains. <clears throat> So I figure like you and Ish would be very good to to explain what's happening in the privacy and cryptography space that isn't related to blockchains, but that could also oh. be of interest. 
Sure. I mean, the, the things that I should probably start off with uh, fully homomorphic encryption, FHEs, right? There has been significant progress in fully homomorphic encryption. And you might wonder why it's interesting. So the reason why it's interesting is like, if you go to Google, if you ever had actually searched for a flight in Google to say Bali or someplace, and then you go, go, to, go to your Gmail and the ad that you have, is like cheap flights to that place, right? That implies Google has actually access to any search that you make on Google. Imagine a situation where you know you have the ability to search something on Google and Google doesn't know what you search for. That is what a fully homomorphic encryption would allow you to do. And it has a whole bunch of other privacy and other implications. You can actually have machine learning algorithms work without revealing data, right? And uh, this, you know, in, in a larger scheme of things, like there's this close relationship between uh, secure multi-party compute and fully homomorphic encryption. Those two are like, you know, some of the very, very, very interesting uh, schemes that are there. Then there are some, uh, you know, uh, attribute-based encryption and some of the cryptographic primitives that have come into being. And then there's also differential privacy. Differential privacy has been around for a while now. I mean, when I say while, it's like more than decades kind of thing. Cynthia Dork, she was in Microsoft Research, she actually published a monograph. It's very much worth a read. Essentially, what that means is you look at a, a, a set, a privacy set, and that sense, and you, you perturb it, and you use statistical tests and see that it is almost impossible for anybody to recognize as something has been changed in that sense. So all of that is very interesting from a more machine learning perspective, in that sense, if I went back to put it that way. So, you know, doing machine learning while preserving privacy. To me, that has a broader and larger implication to society than probably blockchain would have in the immediate future. Mm -hmm. Ruben, want to add to that? No, I have nothing to add to that. I mean, I think Anish is definitely more of the subject matter expert on this than me. I mean, I do agree stuff like, you know, uh, FHE and stuff like that, definitely. You know, interesting. And yes, blockchain technologies, cryptocurrency is pretty groundbreaking, but you know, a lot of really cool cryptography is like really coming to the fore, especially, you know, in the digital world uh, and in a kind of a environment where right now in the digital world where we have kind of like, kind of surrendered our privacy and like, oh yeah, what can we do? Uh, I do think like new schemes are coming out. Like I, even though this is not like groundbreaking tech, I do think that, you know, the fact that end-to-end -end encryption in, in messaging now is, is pretty considered standard that that, that's only been happening in the past few years. I mean, that's mm -hmm. not like super groundbreaking tech, but to do so, and I guess in the scalable manner was previously challenging. And, and I guess for some projects still are, I, I do think that we're heading in the right direction, but I just don't know whether we're moving kind of fast enough, <laughs> mm -hmm. especially I think, you know, when we're looking at stuff like CBDCs and, you know, uh, or like the Australian government, like, you know, saying that we might want to hack, you know, uh, our own citizens or insert backdoors into cryptography, mm -hmm. those kind of stuff really, I don't know, it's like going back to the stone ages of cryptography, like back to the clipper chip days, which I guess yeah. I think Anish knows as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I was about to <laughs> literally mention that, like, you know, people seem to clearly not understand from history, right? Like if you make a mistake and you try to continue and do this, I mean, I don't know who defined this. Like if you do something and you expect a different result, it kind of defines craziness in that sense. And that's the craziness that we are actually seeing. You do something silly and you've already known that the result is going to be 
utterly disastrous and you expect a better result i don't know what to what to think of them what to make of them or what to say to them and the i mean would you consider that as ruben said we're moving in the right direction but maybe not fast enough oh yeah i mean i would completely agree so the way i think about this maybe i'm a cynic and uh, my view of the world is slightly jaded so I, i've been involved with the you know the bullshit called the cloud really early on so you know in fact i ended up writing some bits of it so to me i saw the writing on the wall the big data becoming a huge thing and like you know even i i was involved in some other bits of that space so i see the pace at which you know privacy is being eroded because an, i can as an economic argument has become an incredibly big one so if anybody has actually read the unusual effectiveness of data paper there's only three things that are there one is humans to actually build the models two is hardware three is the data data mot that's literally what it is and the the the, the real scourge for data for the fang of the world is ongoing right it's an onslaught and what's literally happening is like the onslaught of the fang is not only just fang and other people are joining that's onslaught everybody is actually joining them and everybody is seeking an information arbitrage on the average user and you know i am hoping that the privacy world will have some solutions to some of these problems sooner than later because once the cat is out of the bag the only way is going to normalize is by half life so data normally has a half life so it has to decay back to normality and otherwise the data that's already in the vaults of google and facebook and twitter is with them and not with you so they have an arbitrage over you now you meaning every user on the whole face of earth right so that to me the more data they collect the weaker the position of the society is and uh, you know the more arbitrage they will run against the society I guess like I my... do think that I... go ahead. Oh, sorry. I I do think that you know a lot of it actually the tech is there, but there's just not the will uh, to 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 implement it. The new the the will or the economic incentives to implement it. Uh, I guess like Signal, I guess is a bit of an outlier. You know where you know people want privacy and therefore like they kind of made a business model. Then they launch another privacy coin and stuff like that. But but I do think that you know uh, you know like for example stuff like you know like with 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 what's happening with the Apple iPhones or you know like you can easily do end to end encryption for. For iCloud, right? I mean, they definitely have the resources to do it, but because of pressure, they've decided not to do so. Instead, they've decided to, you know, have this new cryptographic system or a new system that that scans your phone for for potential CSAM pictures and upload them. And that, to me, that I mean, yeah, it's a bit off topic, but it's something that really gets my goat because they have the ability to change like privacy and but they don't they they choose to go the other way and use like you know silly arguments that they don't really actually protect the people they say they're protecting uh but actually just enable uh mass surveillance and and that really irks me like that really really pisses me off yeah <laughs> man and i think the um, th- that point it's going to be like this is a topic that doesn't come up as often as it should that there are resources to give privacy to people it's not like we're 
in an obscure, in the obscure days where like people were just inventing the business models for the internet and were just learning how to exploit data. Now they have data that they're actively like, I mean, there are these Facebook leaks about all the stuff that they know that is actually harmful for their users. And yeah. you could draw a parallel with privacy to that um, about how much they know that what they're doing is actively bad for their users, but because there's not actual pressure happening to them or because no one's really able to get them to do anything. They just like that. They don't have any reason to to move forward and and that's like you say the hard, hardware developers that software developers that the people that are building the networks that we use i have like 10 more minutes with you guys at most before anish has to go so mm-hmm. i just want to get both of your impressions on cbdc's because i reckon that's a very relevant topic to the crypto community right now and i'd really like to see how you both think we should approach it is it okay if i go first yeah Yeah. go ahead so i'm going to say some things that a lot of people might not like but it's what it is right so if cbds are are going to happen uh, i kind of divide the world into two halves one where people care about privacy the other people don't care about privacy and that could be you know one could be considered authoritarian world and the other other in the, the world is not boolean it's not black or white it's shades of gray if i may put it that way so mm-hmm. literally what has happened yes <laughs> so uh, you know somewhere in the middle is this problem the problem here is the following. Like, if you actually have a privacy-less CBDC, what you're offering, if you're a nation-state, head, head of a nation-state, you, what you should recognize is your adversary actually has a very good window into everything that's actually happening as an economic activity in your state. Your adversary could pretty much, you know, sack the whole economic intelligence unit straight up, right? So that should actually inform some of the leaders of the world that how what they should think it. The other part is there is some benefits in actually doing this. So if you were to get 10 economists in the room, you will get 20, 20 opinions or something, right? Mm-hmm. And your ability to do an A-B testing is kind of very limited. If you ever see, you know, uh, increase in rates in, uh, say, the U.S., Treasury, and you wait for six months to see or three months to see how the economy responds, right? But in the CBDC, what you can do is you can actually have uh, changes and you have very, very good feelers and you get, like, instant feedback. And you could also run virtual experiments in many ways. So in many ways, you would actually push the, eco- the, 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 the practical aspects of validating economic models to the next level and run experiments in the nation state, at the same time exposes the risk of privacy in the situation to the largest possible extent, allowing authoritarian states to do things that we never ever took could happen. That's what I was talking yeah, definitely. I think it, I mean, like, I think definitely, you know, the, the potential gains are great, right? It's a double edged sword. It's almost like if, if you have a CBDC, it's almost like, uh, it's almost as if the, the bankers and the, the economists have this sim city look, uh, over like how money is being spent, how money is being flowed and, and stuff like that. And, you know, obviously there is all this argument that, uh, you know, this, this is good to prevent money laundering and crime and stuff like that. Uh, but to me, 
the thing is that you know maybe it is possible to have a kind of like a happy medium between uh, privacy and transparency i don't know i i'm not an expert in this thing but i don't know stuff like fhe and stuff where you do have like individual privacy but you still can get aggregated data maybe that's one way to approach it but i i have a feeling that it's going to the things that designing and implementing such systems aren't easy, right? And, and and it's still kind of like in this infancy and there's no real, um, there's no real kind of like huge impetus to, to do so. Um, and I mean, especially in Asia, uh, like even where I come from, you know, everyone's like, saying, let's go cashless, let's go, you know, like the whole convenience of not holding paper notes and stuff like that has been, been really appealing, right? And I do worry that, you know, I think it's not just like the government looking at what you do, but the ability to cut you off from the system at almost like basically a click of a button. That to me is scary, right? Because, you know, in the US, we talk about the right to bear arms, the right to, to rise against your government if they're authoritarian. Guess what? You know, you cut you off from your money, cut, cut all this stuff. What the heck are you going to be able, what are the heck are you going to do, Right. I do think it's interesting to see that even like certain advanced economies uh, where, of course, for different reasons, like for example, Japan, despite being you know, one of the most digitalized place, they still rely a lot on physical cash as well because they have negative interest rates and all this sort of stuff. Therefore, they want to keep cash. I mean, a CBDC, you can probably sort of like automatically say, yep, negative interest rates, right? Oh, you know, I'm going to cut a bit of this. You can apply that because, you know, it's almost like a currency that you can control, right? And similarly, uh, you know, you have like Germany, right? Which I guess has more, I guess, relevant arguments where, you know, especially, you know, them having going through a dicta dic dictatorship and stuff like that. They see money as uh, like cash as kind of like a separate separation of the state and the citizen, right? Where you know, the money is not totally controlled by the state. And I think it's an interesting balance of power there. Yes, obviously, you know, there, there has to be some control over like, you know, limits and stuff like that. But, you know, when you see the world banning cash, going through digital thing, and there's very little talk about privacy. It's usually in the terms of, yes, it's private, but then we can see it. The government can see it. Uh, the authorities can see. It. And that's a real... Uh, that's a real thing because we should not be trusting our governments with our stuff. I mean, like, I mean, there was even leaks from, you know, potentially the U.S. census data, right? That was out. Not just like stuff like Facebook, but actual governments. I mean, our government leaked all our national identities, our addresses and all of that. So, you know, an adversary could also do that too. So I do think that CBDCs, to me, I the 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 cons of like you know enabling authoritarian governments kind of far outweigh you know the potential benefits it can because I think if there's one thing that we can learn from humans is that power corrupts but absolute power corrupts completely and that has been the case no matter how well intentioned you start off with there needs to be balance in power to keep that power in check yeah. and also in like a big enough sample I mean if you have a 15 presidents there might be a chance that all of them are well adjusted but if you have 120 then you might have a couple weirdos out there and then th <laughs> there's where you don't want them handling this kind of data that easily right, right yeah I mean, 
guys, I'm being very, very mindful of uh, Anisha's request to to finish on time. So if you want, let's uh, let's start wrapping up um, before we do so. Anish, any any final thoughts on this on this topic or on anything else? No, you know, I think the way I describe it is like we are in a time and in a place where there's a lot of changes happening in society driven by technology. It has been driven by that drop in price of doing machine learning, which actually made the surveillance economy real. So the other side of the equation is this emergence of decentralized mechanisms of trust which didn't exist under recently. And there is a third argument, which is like, you know, for me, the more interesting of all of them is like a non-interactive zero knowledge proof systems, which to me was like, you know, until recently, there is no way in hell you could have authenticity without privacy. So we are at a melting pot in the time, in that sense of technological evolution. Maybe we could make the right kind of choices. And FHG is another thing that happened. You know, to, until 2008, nobody really believed that you could actually do it. So, you know, obfuscation wasn't there. It hasn't been impossible to resolve, right? So, so we are where we are, where it is possible for humanity to actually come up with solutions where we can have fairness, we can actually have society where we respect each other and have a democracy and things of that sort. And also, we need to remember, we are at the precipice of other challenges, the existential risks that we have existential risk of AI, existential risk of climate change, existential risk of, you know, I don't know what the hell, right? So we have a bunch of choices. Each of the choices is going to drive society towards a stage where other choices are, you know, lost. And I would like us to actually think really hard before we step down the road of a non, you know, non-invertible changes in that sense. And, uh, you know, and, we should have a representative thinking. And one of my worries is like, uh, you know, as probably this is uh, an example of a very rare occurrence of a non-representative conversation where a brown-skinned man and, a, you know, an Asian person and a Hispanic is talking about things, where the future of state is a question. Typically speaking, that's only a very specific gender, a very specific, you know, demographic is being represented. And I think you know, people really need to get a chance to actually say what they want because their future is at stake. Okay, interesting, man. Um, I have to say, <clears throat> back to the CVDC thing, that I did, both of your perspectives have been the most balanced that I've heard so far. And considering that I have two people that are advising boards on CVDCs on this podcast before, that really worries me. <laughs> But um, I'm happy to I'm happy to know that at least someone is putting out like a voice of reason out there when it comes to this call hot mess. Um, My shit says everything. Citizens, <laughs> not suspects. <laughs> <laughs> and right now, I'm very much a suspect because I just got an AML letter from like a centralized wow. so, so please, oh. please get. Cracking on that decentralized exchange, <laughs> please, Anish. Um, I will. Yeah. <laughs> no, go ahead. Okay. The, the, okay. The, the, thank you both very much for this opportunity. I have to you know, run away now because my connection here is like uh, at the mercy of so many things, and like you know, at any time I might lose it. 
And then, you know, we tried so many times now, three times or four times. Every time I was stuck in some place with no connection. So, you know, this took a lot of planning of mine to make this happen. So while it's as good as it is, I want to say thank you to both of you. And, uh, you know, hopefully when I get to my next place, uh, wherever in the world it is, I probably have better bandwidth and, uh, you know, better chance to talk to you about no, that, thank you for making uh, the time on your world tour, Anish. And I have to say that the sound quality did improve a lot with the camera off. And now it's still okay, but it, it was not ideal at first. Uh, Ruben, also, thanks to you, man. Like you, you've also been making a lot, of, a lot of time in your in your schedule to make this happen. And this uh, conversation really flew by, guys. Uh, really <laughs> welcome back anytime. And thanks, thanks a lot. And thanks to everyone listening. <laughs>